I'm going to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. So this is a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and it will not, normally, often we have things that are printed up on the screen. It won't be up there. Uh, we're going to look at this whole section, won't read all of it, but it would be very helpful if you have it in front of you. So we have pew Bibles that are out there, or you, maybe you have a Bible or you have a Bible app. Strongly encourage you to keep it in front of you as we walk through the next few minutes. This is John chapter 13. This is God's word to us this morning. And again, this is, for context, this is the night that Jesus is going to be betrayed. So this is leading towards Jesus' um, trial and execution. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and he went and washed the disciples' feet. And in that, we see the interaction that he has with Peter, right? Where Peter says, you're not washing my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. So coming out of that, when he had washed their feet, this is verse 12, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you then know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then following this was the conversation that ended with Judas leaving into the night to betray Jesus. And when they had gone out, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, and I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, Lord, as we listen to these words yet again, this historic event, please allow your spirit to take it and to use it in our life. We need to hear from you today. We need to encounter you, Jesus, in a very similar way that your disciples encountered you. So please do that, we ask in your name. Amen. So we started looking at this passage last week, and we said the big idea here is the followers of Jesus are to be marked by the life of Jesus. 
This is how we define what it looks like to be a follower. You're marked by him. How does this happen? How are you marked by him? Well, we said it involves appreciating his life, exemplifying his love, and living under his love. And we looked at the first one last week, this idea of, or a couple weeks ago, appreciating his life. To follow Jesus involves appreciating him. It's hard to follow if you're not drawn in, right? If you're not attracted, it's really hard to follow. And the dominant theme of his life, therefore, that is supposed to be a, a appealing to us was his love. That's what we see throughout this passage and throughout his life. And from there, we looked at his love. And I know I'm going to run through these quick because we already talked about them. And they're going to come up again as we move into this next section. But his love, what does it look like? Well, it moves with compassionate confidence. It washes feet. It accepts rejection. It completes this story, the Hebrew story, but also the human story. It suffers grief and it reveals glory. So in this context, moving on from there, in this context, Jesus says this in verse 14. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. One another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. We are marked by his life as we exemplify his love. That's how we're marked. And he reiterates this many times throughout his ministry, his life. To know how this looks for us, therefore, we need to reflect back on his service. So what does his service look like that's then going to move us forward? How is his characteristics supposed to imprint on us? Well, we are to move with compassionate confidence. Okay, we're just going to see what Jesus did and follow him. Move with compassionate confidence, confidence towards others who may be like us, towards others who may not be like us, towards others who may not like us, okay? We're to move with compassionate confidence, even those who are not liking us, all right? This confidence is not that we think our service is going to turn out like a Hallmark movie. You know, if I serve well, it's going to end well. No, that's not where our confidence is. Nor is it that we think it's going to be reciprocated. That's not where our confidence comes from. Where does our confidence come from? It comes from this. This, this is Jesus' way, and his way is actually best. It's confidence in that. That all authority has been given to him, and that this is the only way his rule of love is going to invade the world. This is where confidence comes from. And so, the service looks like What? Well, what did his look like? It looked like washing feet, quiet, unassuming humility. It's finding a need and meeting a need. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Not, not because you necessarily get something out of it, not because it makes you look good, not even because it's a good witness or that it gives you a platform to evangelize, which it may, okay? Great if it does, but those aren't the real reasons we serve each other and others. Rather, it's because it's what Jesus does and we follow him. It's the way human community is actually supposed to work, which give glimpses of how shalom, that, that Hebrew word for universal peace and flourishing, is how shalom begins to be realized on earth as it's fully realized in God's space. And this kind of service according to Jesus, will also involve accepting rejection or at least possible rejection from those that we serve. 
which apparently is how Jesus completed the story of the Old Testament. He accepted the rejection even of those that he was serving and even as he served. And with that, he completed the human story and became the complete human, the one that we were all originally designed to be, Jesus was. And Jesus is. So now what do we do? We, we carry his story of completion by reenacting little scenes of his life in our life. You get that? This is why we forgive. Do you know that? This is why we need forgiveness. Forgiveness is about absorbing wrongs, absorbing rejection, and returning what to people? Returning grace. This makes us a different kind of storyteller to the world who's shaped by a belief that Jesus' life is actually the completed life. When we wash feet, we don't do it as a means to an end. Please, let's hear, if you're a follower of Jesus here, I think sometimes we get this mixed up. We're not doing this as a means to an end. In some ways, it is actually the end, and it's pointing to the end, which is pointing to the new beginning, which does not free us from harm and pain, but rather frees us to suffer grief, to mourn when people turn away and reject and betray us. It actually frees us to do this. Why do I say that? Because that's what Jesus did, right? That was in verse 21 when it says his his spirit was deeply troubled. He grieved. So we exemplify him by grieving, by grieving when others hurt you. When others hurt you, it hurts, right? And to pretend as if it doesn't isn't being honest. It hurts. But we also grieve for others because of the hurt they bring on themselves and others around them. When others betray you, do you have to recoil in surprise? Oh, I can't believe they did this to me. No, Jesus gives us warning of that. Um, Might it hurt? Yes, it will hurt. But you can continue to move forward and continue to love. So here's a warning. If you're looking to serve with the need to be treated fairly, you will be horribly disappointed. As you serve, many grow to love and appreciate you. And many grow to not love and appreciate you. So hurting for and even at the hands of others is part of being marked by Jesus. This kind of comes with it. It's part of the package, which oddly enough all leads to this revealing or in our case reflecting the glory, the goodness of who God is. When we exemplify Jesus like this, God's true nature and his kingdom of love is revealed and it's reflected through us. What if we lived like this? What an example this is, right? What a community this would create if if this characterized us. What would the world look like if there were more pockets of people who embodied this way of living, who were infected and therefore were infectious to the larger community? What if it was that way? The church is supposed to be that. We're supposed to give glimpses of this, right? Do we all know that that's true? So a few weeks ago, Jim talked about wanting more. Do you remember that for those of you who are here? Do we want more of this? Do we want more of this? Some may even question, is, okay, and especially maybe you're, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here. Maybe you even question, look, I've encountered a lot of Jesus followers and that's not really what I see. 
Okay, that may be true. The more I see Jesus' life and the way of life, the way life is actually supposed to work, the more brilliantly, radically alien he becomes, but in a good way. The more attractive I realize he is, the more I actually appreciate him. And at the very same time, the more I see how my life dulls in comparison. So what do you do? How does God's spirit renew us and motivate us and move us forward? Well, here's how. We need to live under his love. Okay, two things to consider when we're talking about living under his love. The first is this. Acknowledge the discrepancy. How do you live under his love? Acknowledge this discrepancy. For the Jesus follower, acknowledging this should never be, and please hear me because I know some people, oh, woe is me, beat myself, you know, I'm a lowly worm, right? That's not the point of this. This should never be debilitating or, or, or cause depression. If we are first living under his love, then this realization of our life versus his life does some good things to us. What does it do for us? Well, let me name the ways, okay? It builds anticipation. I am very glad that I have not arrived. That would be sad if this were the best life now. That would be a sad day. That would be, now that's depressing if this is it, okay? There is a day coming when this self-oriented beast within me will be obliterated and out of death, God is going to raise to new life a new creation, a new civilization, a renewed world. Seeing the discrepancy builds anticipation and hope for the day that is guaranteed. That's a, I think that's a good thing, is it? Is that a good thing? I like that. Then it also cultivates our palate. Like seeing this can give us a distaste for our old appetites and retrain our palate, awaken our taste buds for a better life. Can't it? So I don't like coffee, but I drink a lot of coffee because I go to coffee shops. I don't go to coffee shops to drink coffee. I just drink it because I go to coffee shops. Does that make any sense? Mm. So the place downtown called the Dark Heart. I love it. It's great. I mean, I love the place. I don't love coffee. So they usually have two drip coffees. One has like a fruity flavor usually, and one has a chocolatey flavor. I'm way over-exaggerating it. I have zero palate for coffee. So what I've started doing is I get up to the counter, and they tell me, would you like the one that has the notes of all of this or one that has a... I'm like, I don't know. Give me one, and don't tell me what it is. <laughs> and let me taste it and figure it out. Why am I doing this? I'm trying to train my palate. How am I doing not doing very well, okay? But I'm trying. I'm trying to train my palate in the same way. Contrasting the nuances of his love in comparison to mine cultivates an appetite for him. Cultivates the palate. And when we see this chasm between our life and his, it also exposes a craving. Meaning what? It sheds light on what often holds us back from serving and loving well. Do you know what that is? Do you know what holds you back? And maybe it is different for all of us, but listen, I can pretend to be okay when things are not okay for a period of time, actually for a fairly long period of time. But at some point, the well runs dry, the last rejection becomes too much, the grief becomes too heavy. Eventually, I crave for somebody to be there for me. And it sounds self-centered, But I don't know if we can escape this ache, this longing, without cutting off some part of our humanity. This is the 
so often repeated story of how we fall into affairs. And maybe some of you are in them right now. Or codependent relationships. Or why pornography is so powerful. Beyond just the sex part, it's a craving. It is a longing to be loved by someone, to be wanted by someone, for somebody to give themselves to me. And of course, community and marriages should be caring for one another, meeting some part of this desire to be loved. And when we're not doing it well, this vacuum of needing to be loved is intensified. We should be doing it. It's intensified when we're not doing it well. But even so, the kind of care for which we ache is never going to be fully satisfied by the perfect community, the perfect church, and the perfect spouse. I should know because I'm married to her. And why? Why is it not enough? Because others were never meant to be your refuge and your source of unending love. They weren't designed for that. Community and marriage and church is to be a place that lives under perfect love, and it should image perfect love. It is never to replace perfect love. Somebody recently told me um, that others had told them that they were an emotional vampire. Maybe the emotional vampire exists in all of us to some degree. When do we go? Where do we go from here? Okay, how do you learn to serve better beyond just acknowledging our discrepancy, right? In part, humble service and cultivating humble service is done by serving, okay? You don't learn to do things without practicing, right? You don't, you don't learn to become a better golfer. Look at this swing right there. Look at that. You don't learn to become a better golfer. I haven't golfed in like years. You don't become a better golfer unless you do what? Practice it right? We have to practice it. We have to, have, to, have to actually go out and do this thing. But is that enough? How are we motivated and re-energized when we grow weary of practicing? There's this undercurrent that is so, I think, hard to see, but it's intuitive. We know it, and we need to face it. Psychologically speaking, there's this popular saying that I think has been a saying for a long time. I just came across it recently. Hurt people do what? You've all heard this. I should be on Twitter more, I guess. Hurt people hurt people. Okay, if that's true, isn't the opposite true? Loved people love people? People who humbly serve are people who are humbly served? There's a, it's no longer like a recent song because it was written, I think, or came out like in 2003 by a guy named John Mayer, and he says this. Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers, so mothers be good to your daughters too. It's true. When Jesus began to wash Peter's feet, Peter said, What are you doing, Jesus? You are not going to wash my feet. This was humbling for Peter, right? But the flip side of that is to let somebody serve you is the way your heart is trained to serve. And it's the way to be filled with service and infectious for service. Duncan and Lady Howard have been working out at Laga Vista, Neighbor, Laga Vista Neighborhood with this organization called Laga Vista Neighbor for several years now. And they were telling me not too long ago that one of the young men who's been a part of their program for many years, this is what he said to them. When I grow up, 
I want to do what you do. It doesn't get any better than that. Loving service is infectious. When Peter resisted Jesus' foot washing, what did Jesus say? Peter, you're so humble. Oh, that's, that's so good that you're like that. Thank you. Is that what he says? If you don't let me serve you, you have no share with me. To be a part of me, you must receive me. To share my love, you must receive my love. To be my body, you must eat my body. Jesus must do something for us that we can't do for ourselves. To submit to his rule, right, to be marked by him, is not just appreciating his life and exemplifying his love. It's living under it. It's accepting his service individually and corporately. If Jesus is primarily your model and example, if that's what you look at, Jesus is your great model. If that's primarily what you look at Jesus for, he will crush you. He better crush you or you haven't met him. The invitation is not wash others' feet so that maybe somebody will wash yours or take up your cross and suffer so that maybe somebody will do that for you. This is how the world works. As an old song says, if you want love, you got to give a little. That's, what, that's the story of the world. Jesus' way is upside down. John puts it this way. This, this is love. Not that you loved God but that he first loved you. He sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for you. The only way to exemplify him is by receiving his service. Don't lose sight of that. Let us not lose sight of that. Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hand, rose to serve us. He gave up his rights to share his table which led to his finest hour, verse 31 says. The hour God's greatness was lifted up when Jesus, the teacher, the Lord, the ruler of all, the king of kings, laid down his life to wash more than our dirty feet. The way we're marked by Jesus to appreciate him, to exemplify him, is by living under his love consistently remembering, humbling ourselves, receiving, eating, drinking, accepting his foot washing. Father, the idea of being served, and sometimes it's attractive, but sometimes it's repulsive. We don't want to humble ourselves for service. But if we do not, we have no part with you. That's what you said, Lord Jesus. This is scary and it is so freeing because there's nothing, nothing in our hands we bring. Only, only to your cross do we cling. Lord, allow that to sink into us. Allow us to receive from you, Spirit, move in us now to receive your service, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.